Welcome to MBA Connections with me, your host, Lashanti the Siren. This podcast will be diving into the MBA Connect Network. This network exists to connect MBA managers across the Caribbean. In this special series, each episode will feature interviews with managers from across the network to show how this initiative is meeting the real needs of MBA managers by tapping into the wealth of real-world experiences and inspiring new approaches and ideas for their marine protected areas. On today's episode, we have our guest, Joe Villafranco from the Tide Belize organization. Welcome, Joe. Tell us a little bit about who you are. Hi, thank you very much for having me. It's truly an honor. Um, as you said, my name is Joe Villafranco. I am with, I'm the development director for the Toledo Institute for Development and Environment, which is TIDE. Uh, and we're located in the southern part of Belize, Central America. Um, so we manage, or rather, I should, I should say co-manage the Port Honduras Marine Reserve along with the government of Belize. Awesome. So can you give us a brief introduction about who you are as far as like your educational background and all the experiences and things that you went through to get into conservation and even get to this position here at the Institute? Okay, well, I, I, I grew up um, in the countryside and uh, my family really was, we were into farming um, and really it was, not very sustainable in the sense that they used to be slash and burn because that's what most people were doing. So you basically cut down the forest and then you burn it and then you get to plant. And, you know, the plants really grow well and that's just because of the the nutrients and that whole biochar that you get um, that really allow the plants to grow well. But the downside to that, of course, is that, you know, the area is now prone to erosion from you know, from the rains and so on and so forth. And, and in the southern part of Belize, we get the highest rainfall in the entire country, which is like, you know, 160 inches of rain per year. Wow. Um, and it rains like six months of the year. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, it's, it's good and bad, you know, yeah. because there's, there's a lot of um, erosion if you, if you aren't careful in, in how you approach farming. Um, and so I went to school college, university, and so on. Um, and I studied biology. Um, and then, and that's when I realized that, you know, these, these types of farming practices can have negative effects on the environment, not just in the immediate area, but also when you travel down the river and eventually out to the coral reefs. Um, we were also, during school, I was also exposed to, you know, going out in the field, going out to, to seas, seeing corals snorkeling and, and realize there's a whole nother another world and and it's so beautiful that you know you, you there's the first thing that comes to mind is that you want to do something to ensure that you can protect this this environment um and so i actually even like just before i left school or i graduated um tide had a vacancy for marine biologists and so i applied even though I was, you know, fresh, didn't have a lot of experience. <laughs> uh, but the advantage I think I had was is, is that I, I I was from the Toledo district. Yeah. And so um, it's like going back home for me. And so um, I was fortunate enough to, to be given that opportunity. And that's where it all started, I guess, you know, um, as the marine biologist, 
I started doing like water quality out in the seas, looking at coral, looking at fish, learning to snorkel, learning to dive, um, working with mangroves. Um, and then eventually, uh, there were other opportunities for, for, for me to move in other directions of the organization that had to do with uh, more of management. Uh, and though I love being out, um, I realized that there was there was this gap in the organization, and and seeing you know I, I also had a vision for what I wanted the organization to be, uh, and I thought well you know we have to fill this gap of managing these projects and managing the the whole programs at Thailand, and so I started working on managing the program and doing into getting into planning and um, budgeting and all of that. Um, and supervising people out in the field, and it was it was okay enough. <laughs> but I think that I probably had um, an eye for it, and so um, my boss quickly realized that I had potential to to get more into this level. And right. since there was also a need, I think I just kind of fell into into that. Yeah, you know, budgeting is always the word that I think a lot of project managers and just a lot of like line staff in organizations are like, oh my gosh, anything but the budget. I know I'm very much, <laughs> as a marine biologist, I'm like, if I have to do a budget, I'm like, can you guys just, just give me the money? I don't know. I don't know how to do the budget stuff. So, so to hear, you know, that in the network, you're known as like this marine biologist turned budget guru, you know, so how did, how did you do that? Give me some budget tips. Like, how did you show from marine biologists this heavy science? And I think even throughout studies and just throughout work as a marine biologist, you know, budgeting just, I don't know, but clearly for you, you know, so tell me, how did you become the budget guru, the MPA budget guru? Well, <laughs> I don't know if I'll give myself that name, but <laughs> okay. Um, it's It stands back to, to the need uh, and the issues that I had while trying to manage these these projects and programs um, mm -hmm. and realizing that there were a lot of questions that I, I, I didn't know the answer to, like how much do we need to spend in these different areas? Um, if a donor comes and say, well, where's your, where's your financial gap? It was difficult for us to, to get to that point. Uh, and every time we needed to answer the question, we had to go digging through all of these different projects trying our best to bring them together. And there's, you know, um, there are no certainty as to whether or not you actually have the real figures. Right. Um, and then I, and then there's also the need for, for um, the, the people working with finances, like the accountants and so on, and the finance people to, to know where should we spend? How much money do we have? Um, you know, uh, working with balances and make sure, making sure that we're not spending outside of what we're supposed to be spending. Right. Um, so there was a there were a lot of questions even at the board level or the governance level. They right. wanted to know how much money do you have for for these bigger things like how much are you spending on travel? How much are you spending on um, education and outreach? And so, what all of these questions put together. I decided that you know I have to come up with a better way of of responding to them, um, and then you know it it kind of led me back to the whole planning aspect of it. 
Um, and that's where you have to really get it started. If you don't, if you don't have it in, in the planning, then there's, it's going to be very, very difficult for you to get it in the end. Yeah. Um, and so I, I developed this huge Excel sheet uh, <laughs> and eventually turned into a tool. But it was, there was a lot of you know, trial and error and, and mm -hmm. stuff like that um, to, to find a point where it worked for, for everybody. Right. Um, and though we, I was just using it for my own purposes, really. And I'm trying to remember exactly how the MPA got a hold of it or how, how it all came out. But I don't know. Emma invited me to, to a presentation. It was just a presentation at the time. Uh, and I briefly talked about it and showed people what we do or how we approach um, budgeting and management of all of these projects. Um, and then suddenly there was, there was a lot of interest from everybody because they realized that, hey, we could do something like this. Um, we were not doing it like that. We had, you know, we're doing it our own old-fashioned way and it clearly wasn't working. And, and right. I guess that's kind of where it, it started. Um, of course, I did not study anything with finances. So it's just like stuff I learned throughout my career. Yeah, but that can be valuable. And I think another question I would want to ask is, do you see any benefits of not coming from a financial background helping you do what you do now? Yes, yes. Actually, I think that, that uh, my, my accountant might not agree with me, but I'll say it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's, it's actually uh, more advantageous okay. to, to approach it like, because you're able to fully understand why you need to approach budgeting from that perspective. It's more of a, an activity-based type budgeting um, uh, combined with a, a little bit of the traditional way in which they approach budgeting, which is yeah, more at the top, the higher level. Right. Um, but, but I think that because I'm able to understand projects and how, how these types of projects work from the ground up, I'm, I'm better able to, to develop a budget that's you know more suited to this type of. I mean, you don't learn it in school, you know. Yeah. They teach you science or, or business. Right. Uh, never a combination of, of both. Yeah. And I think it is always important to, in the conservation field, to pull in all of these different um, skills and things to creating plans and creating budgets because. You may see things like you said, like that a person who had a financial only background would never have thought of or never you know, consider when right, making budgets right. for things like this. So, yeah, I can definitely see what you mean about it being more advantageous. And I know you had said you had some time in the field and I'm going to put up the first picture. Um, yeah. So can you tell us a bit about what's happening in this picture? Well, this is just us going out to to check on some of our projects that we have in the field. And in the background there we have... Um, my director, Salem Mahong, and then two of our rangers that were taking us out into the field to just, you know, see what's going on. We get a, a taste of, of um, you know, getting into the water or walking on the land and stuff like that. Um, it's always, it's always good to, it's, you know, honestly, it's difficult to get out into the field. I, I just, you know, there's so much to do in with budgeting and planning and, reporting now i i have 
um, development, mm. uh, which I'm now doing, uh, writing grants and stuff like that. So yeah. getting out in, into the field is, is difficult. Um, and so we just you know, quickly use this opportunity. This is a snapshot of the airport on the Ross Marine Reserve um, yeah. on top of our ranger station. So there's a, there's a lookout tower that you climb up and you get like a 360 degree view from, from there. So, you know, so it gives you an appreciation of, yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, no, no worries. I was just gonna say back to what you said about in the other photo. So how often do you get to go out and appreciate, you know, this view, like, look at this. Or are you oftentimes <laughs> stuck at the computer working on budgets? And I think that is another one of the things where it's like, oh, budgets, I'm gonna be at the desk for hours. Yeah. Like how often yeah. do you get out in the field anymore? Uh, all I can say is not enough. Not you know, enough. Um, yeah, it's because, it, as you said, it takes a lot of time and patience, and you have to be meticulous because with numbers, you know how that goes. You can't, can't, mm -hmm. you can't be. You have to always double check and stuff like that. So, even if it's a short budget you might be working on, you still have to spend a lot of time. Yeah. Um, but I try. We try to go as much as possible. A minimum, you know, every month, every two months, something like that. Yeah. Um, and I think that's, that's important to remind you what you're doing it for, right? Yeah. Yes, of course. Okay. And sorry, let me put, I don't know, put your, right. And so, and this is a, is it the same area? Um, yeah. So this is, this is, um, this picture, this is actually, actually in front of Punta Gorda Town where the office is. Oh. Um, Tide's office. Well, that's um, a nice it's not, it's not really in this picture right now, but you could this a little bit further to the north. Mm -hmm. But this is just outside of the Port Honduras Marine Reserve. And this is a local fisher that fish um, subsist, subsistence fishermen. Okay. Um, and how most people used to fish this way in the past. Now that's, that's changing to, you know, motorized engines and so on. And so yeah. people are becoming more efficient at fishing. Um, yeah. which, you know, has its pros and cons. <laughs> I wondered if you would say that, because I definitely always think, like, humans are getting more efficient <clears throat> at doing things like fishing and hunting. And as a conservationist, yeah. it's like, that's great for humans. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The ones who are already at the food chain, like, yeah, you know, yeah. and I think in becoming more advanced and more efficient, I think it sometimes disconnects us from nature and so we often forget that that we're a part of this circle and this ecosystem and i think that's why as far as conservationists goes it's so hard to reconnect people because they, they just can't see the connection whereas before when you're actively engaging with the environment like you're you're not just powering on a motorboat you're appreciating the fact that as you paddle along yeah. you see things yeah. and you, you're taking in nature as opposed to now you have an engine on your boat and you just zip past everything and it's just tunnel vision so yeah, yeah, I'm glad you said pros and cons. I was like, oh man, <laughs> we're so intelligent, but you know, we, it can really be to our detriment sometimes. So, conservationists will save the world. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that's that's why we we try to to manage it because you have to have a balance. Mm -hmm. You know, um, though boats have made us more efficient, um, if we don't have some sort of a, a check, those checks and balances in place. We could end up in that situation as well, yeah. um, not just from Belize's standpoint, but we we are also very very close to our neighbors um, in Guatemala, yeah. that has you know this huge population, um, 
huge demand for anything, <laughs> not just fish. Mm -hmm. um, and so they often come over to into Belize's waters to, to fish. And that's just, I think they're just driven by the fact that they, you know, there's a need, there's a huge need. Yeah. Um, and so, but we have been working with, with other NGOs in Guatemala and Honduras, because that's where most of the fishers come from that, you know, go into our waters yeah. um, on, on programs like conservation programs, education programs, so that they are aware of, you know, the, the laws in Belize, um, the, where the marine protected area is, and, you know, so on and so forth. Uh, but it's, it's very, very difficult. Um, and, and at home, we have managed access, which is um, an incentive-based approach to fisheries management um, that would have all of these measures, these checks and balances in place um, to ensure that we don't get into an overfishing situation. But of course, none of this is foolproof. I mean, we, you know, we, we, we have to be adaptive for the most part. It takes time. We're still learning a lot of things and, and ways to deal with all of these changes that are happening for us as humans living in the environment or with the environment, rather. Um, but I know I've heard that you recently took a trip to the Eastern Caribbean. Can you tell us what the trip was about? How did it go? What did you do there? I'm very interested. Yeah, I wouldn't say recently because by when you talk about the Caribbean, you have to be like every year. <laughs> <laughs> and my trip was two years ago. Just before COVID, actually. Pre-COVID, when life yeah, was pre -COVID. still. <laughs> yeah, pre-COVID. Um, yeah. And there was all of these plans to go back, like, every year. And, yeah, never happened. But it was it was very, very interesting. I've been there, I think, maybe, like, the third. Just the last one was the third trip to the Eastern Caribbean areas. Um, and the last, on the last trip, we, Emma and I did the training in budgeting and so on in several countries for several MPs. You know, I flew into um, Antigua Barbuda, came down to St. Lucia, um, St. Vincent and the Grenadines, and some, some smaller islands, Karakou and um, Yunnan Island, and then oh, went wow. on to Grenada. So it was, it was a you nice tour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> did a wonderful tour. So, nice in visiting all those places, what would you say is the number one or two, or however many top things that people in the Eastern Caribbean have issues with when it comes to you know this budgeting aspect? What was the most common, I guess, question or just that challenge that people had? Um, hmm, it's I, I think it varies a bit because <clears throat> some MPs rely on. On government, um, uh, on, mm -hmm. on government assistance and subsidies from the government, yeah. Um, and they approach budgeting differently because they have to do basically what the government wants them to do, or how the government wants them to present the budget, right. which in many cases doesn't give them a, a, a true picture of what it costs to manage the the MBAs. Mm. Um, they, they couldn't say how much they spend on a number of programs because they don't do the budget like that. They would say. Um, I'm going to spend X amount of money per quarter, um, and then they submit that to the, to the government. So there's no differentiation between what you're going to use those monies for. Wow. And then, and then you have other people um, who rely on 
on um, entrance fees from their parks. And then they get to use that. Um, and again, most of the budgeting have been happening at a uh, macro level. And so there were no, you know, not much details uh, as we go through, for example, we would, for one activity, we would, we would have budget for each of the, the sub-activities in, in that activity. And that's how we approach it for every single activity. Um, as well as, as, well as um, across the top, the, the higher level budgeting. So we're able to answer detailed questions as well as present upper level information for anybody who wants it, whether it's the government or, or the accountant or board of directors. Um, so it's like one document taking into consideration um, your budgetary needs, but also looking at what your objectives are, what are your um, expected outcomes, what are your inputs, what are your indicators, um, the targets where you want to go, putting all of that information into that big document. So you can use it as uh, to track your budget expenses, but also use it to track your um, implementation of activities and where you are in terms of trying to accomplish your targets. Right. So were there any commonalities in regards to budgets and or cha budget challenges when it comes to, I guess, like writing proposals for funding from either like a, a grant giving organization or even just, I guess, private donors who are interested in just getting this kind of proposal. Are there any challenges or common challenges that you see with those types of budgets? Um, I haven't seen any challenges related to the budgeting aspect of it. Most donors want high level um, budgeting. The only thing I see is that they want their budgets in in these broad budget categories, they, they would often call them, um, like travel. And then you basically have to take all of your travel costs and put them under that travel category. Yeah. But then it doesn't tell you how you're going, how you're going to spend um, on each of your individual categories, like how much of that travel money is going toward education or how much is going toward research and monitoring, how much is going towards um, enforcement. The, the donor budget doesn't always allow you to do that. Yeah. You know, so typically what I do is I create uh, an internal budget by activity and then I assign the donor category to those activities based on what they want. And so I end up with basically two budgets Okay. But the internal budget really helps us to, to implement and plan and also track how much yeah. money we're spending on each of those categories that are interesting, you know, interest to us. I'd imagine that internal budget also is easier for any type of grant or any type of like um, financial application moving forward. So you've really kind of created this nice standardized yes. way of doing things. So are you planning on doing another budget tour <laughs> in the near post-COVID future? Do you think that we can expect some more of those? Are there any islands in particular that might have been requesting it or is it to Yeah, Emma did, Emma did mention that they, that I, I'm trying to remember whether it was up in St. Lucia okay. that um, they were, the National Trust wanted to find out more, you know, needed some help with it. And so there may be a possibility because, I mean, this is something that you have to, you have to be consistent with. Right. 
Um, we do a training, but everything is not clear cut. There are cases where you might, you know, have some questions. People might be wondering, well, how do I approach this? Um, and then, you know, being there to give that advice and also help people along with. Uh, and I'm glad that when we were there, we actually worked on on budgets with people. So it's not like, you know, you go in and you do a, a generic training and people have to figure out from there what they have to do. We yeah. actually pull up their budgets, their annual budgets, and we work with those figures and those activities um, nice. to create something in the end that they can actually use. That's actually really helpful. So that's yeah. the, you know, it's really like applying all of this. So I, I definitely think there's there's scope for it, and and in Belize we're we're also talking about how do we standardize that. Um, mm. There were two M other MPs from Belize that the training or the presentation that I did in in um, Turks and Caicos, and um, they approached me and asked if I could you know share how we approach this with their with their staff as well, um, and, and starting to discuss the possibility of using that document even for us at the national level. Oh, wow. So That's there, there's, there is good potential. Um, and of course, we could we could sit and really tweak this up and, and agree how, it, how it's going to work for all of us. It would be good, as I mentioned to Emma, it would be good to have an idea of what it's costing MPs across the Caribbean to, mm -hmm. to manage their MPs for these categories, you know, and we could really compare and see where the greatest needs are, where the greatest gaps are, you know, um, and, and take that to, to our donors so that they could understand, hey, you know, you can't just be focusing on, on X, Y, and Z. These are actually uh, the needs on the ground. And yeah. for us to be effective, we have to fill those gaps. Yeah, yeah. Definitely, so many gaps. There's uh, a lot, yeah, there's a lot to be done, but <laughs> I think that, um, and this is just one aspect of, of everything. There's the whole science aspect of it that I'm going to leave it to the other experts to deal with. <laughs> yes, you're, you're now officially on the finance side. You moved <laughs> from, from the marine biologists and the sciencey stuff. So we yeah. understand. Everyone we has their meaning. <laughs> <laughs> we have to figure out a name for this. We can't call it finance because it's, it's a bit misleading. That's true. Um, yeah. And yeah. you said development. Um, that development is a bit better of a it, term. It can, yeah. yeah, it can work under yeah. development. <laughs> Definitely. So, if you had to give like your top um, tips or advice to NGOs who are interested in things like budgeting, your like kind of final thoughts for any viewers who are watching, what would those or what would that? If it's just one thing, what would that be? Hmm. It's difficult. I. I mean, I. I am a. I'm an advocate for planning. I, I believe that if you don't have a good plan, um, there's so many ways you could go around uh, with implementation, but also in monitoring and evaluation right. in the end. Um, and so with this type of approach, you take all of that into consideration um, and, and don't, don't approach it in a piecemeal fashion. You have to be able to tie your activities and your targets and your in indicators. <clears throat> Sorry, you have to be able to tie those back into your budgets. And so there's, you know, 
um, you can only do that from a planning perspective. Um, and so my advice would be to, to approach it like that. Look at it in an integrated way. Mm. Uh, plan early, plan often. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and of course, you have to review every quarter. You basically review your plan because things yeah. change. Um, you might you might be planning to, or you might be expecting to, to get, if you're relying on grants, you might be expecting mm -hmm. to get a grant, or if you're relying on income from entrance fees, you might be expecting mm -hmm. to get a certain amount. Yeah. But three, four months down the road, things change. Like COVID. Yeah. That's yeah. why I always, when I first started working in conservation, I had been unfamiliar with the term of a living document, which I feel yeah. like is a universal <laughs> term. But I, when someone first told me, oh, a management plan is a living document, I was like, you know, what does that mean? But just like a management plan, a budget, you also have to like keep keep an eye on these sorts of things yeah. because yeah. things can change so quickly. Sure. So you have to, yeah. it's, you have to be adaptable, constantly adaptable. So plan early, plan often. Yeah review, revise, <laughs> be adaptable when it comes to, to budgeting. Um, yeah. yeah. So the last question, which is a fun one that we've been doing with all of our guests. <laughs> and I even had a guest ask me, is this a real question? Like, are you actually going to ask me this on the show? Yes. <laughs> Who do you think would win between a seabird of your choice and an octopus? And which seabird are you, are you putting against the hypothetical Tussle. Okay. <laughs> of course, we won't do this in real life. We're not putting together yeah. a secret octopus. <laughs> I would say the octopus going up against a cormorant. Okay. And why? Um, why is the cormorant not skilled enough? Yeah, because uh, it has to come up for air at some point. Mm. Yeah. And an octopus can be very strong. Um, and it's it's a bird going into marine environment. Well, what if is, it pulls the octopus out, though? Highly <laughs> unlikely, though. That's highly unlikely. <laughs> That's true. You know? But hypothetically, because okay. this is all a hypothetical, like just oh, imagine, yes. I don't know, maybe the octopus was close to shore and the bird was able to kind of snatch it up onto the beach or onto the rocks. Okay, well, if it's a small one, yes, yes, yes. A oh, I wasn't small. thinking of a small one. I was thinking about yeah. it. Enough. Well, we can say they're yeah. equally sized. The bird and the octopus <laughs> are of the same size, and somehow so, they end up. Yeah. Let's say we so, take them out of the water environment, you know, because an octopus can survive fairly long out of water, and they're like on the rocky shore. Like, how then do you think yeah, that this yeah. battle would go? <laughs> mm, that's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think that if the octopus is in the in a terrestrial environment or in a bird's home, <laughs> then it can, it would probably lose. Yeah. Um, okay. But see, the bird if the bird is going into the marine environment, then that's like the territory of the octopus, which I think it has more advantage there. I think you have you have a good argument. So, so. I'm, yeah, I'm complicating things. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, totally rational argument. Those are things to consider. I know a couple of people have said, well, if the bird dives in and is able to fling the octopus out, then maybe <laughs> that's why it, you know, it's so interesting to access because then you, you kind of see how people think about these things. And, and it's funny too, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
But definitely. So thank you so much, Joe, for taking the time out of your schedule to be on this episode of MPA Connections. To our viewers, thank you so much for watching. You can definitely follow all the work of the MPA Connect Network on their Facebook page, which is mpaconnect.caribbean, or on their Instagram, which is mpaconnect underscore Caribbean. And you can also go to those pages to stay in touch and follow this podcast. So thanks so much again, Joe. And thank you, everyone, for watching.